The business of culture, the culture of business, policy, media and technology, entrepreneurs, investors, creatives, much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. To see this young generation kind of go and open lots of brokerage accounts is a good thing. They want, they should get their foot on the ladder in terms of the stock market, but not if it's not if it's going to be this because I think a lot of them are going to sort of become bitter about it and think that like that they got cheated. Revenge of the small investor? One of the more curious financial headlines from the pandemic era, how little guys with their smallish buy orders for GameStop, AMC, BlackBerry, and other left-for-dead stocks managed to terrorize hedge funds. But is the system still rigged? YOLO, FOMO are powerful animal spirits in the moment. But is this new class of investors also picking up long-term lessons? Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link FullDRadio.com. Follow on Twitter and Facebook at FullDRadio. Joining me is Spencer Jacob, who manages and edits the Wall Street Journal's Heard on the Street column with writers based all over the globe. You've seen bylines New York, London, Hong Kong, San Francisco, and Sydney. Sometimes his own byline, the book, which is about to drop, is The Revolution That Wasn't, GameStop, Reddit, and the Fleecing of Retail Investors. How are you, sir? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Well, I have to say, I'm so excited to, you know, you have a sell-side past. I worked on Wall Street for a little stretch. I know that sometimes we we can't resist the urge to kind of dive into jargony territory and talk about prints and, uh, uh, you know, paper and uh, YOLO and this stuff and that stuff. But we, we, are, we are doing this for a public radio audience. And I'm so fascinated because there's so much surreal stuff going on. But step back for a minute. If you compare what happened uh, recently with this retail investor boom and the GameStop, MemeStop, uh, Reddit, AMC shares and everything, or people are in lockdown at home, I was under the impression that since the turn of the century and the, the dot-com collapse bust, that the retail investor was gone, that this has kind of become a game of, you know, just be the market, don't beat the market anymore. Well, it's interesting you say that because that was the trend. And there was an analyst who wrote a report. And it, it's kind of uh, kind of hard to believe that he, he took himself seriously, where he kind of compared the the rise of index funds to sort of to kind of people kind of putting themselves in, in, in slavery. I mean, Wall Street was really, really worried. So Wall Street was doing well. Obviously, we've had a long bull market, except for the the you know scary dip during the pandemic. And Wall Street was was doing well, but it could have been doing better because the lucrative business of giving people advice, of managing their money, was starting to fade away as people were wising up. And then starting in late 2019 and then really kind of supercharged by the pandemic, you had this wave of young people coming in to the stock market, buying individual stocks, where you went from maybe 10% of activity being individuals to above 30% at one point during uh, during the tale that I tell, uh, which is a very big difference in, in a, the span of, of less than, a, you know, less than two years. So yeah, so the, the, the retail investor is back. Uh, it's not totally positive, uh, as I say. I mean, I, I think it's good that young people are getting involved in the stock market. It's that that's the way you build wealth. You know, if, you know, unless you're going to start a business yourself or buy houses or do whatever, you, you got to build a nest egg through multiplication. But here's, here's right? what you covered and what we were told, that the millennials were walloped coming out of 2008 and 2009. They were really embittered. They were broke. You know, and all these tweets about them blowing money on avocado toast and you should save for a house and their enmity, you know, their, their disdain for OK boomers and everything. Where did the money come from for them to suddenly start romancing concepts like Tesla or GameStop or going on Reddit and saying, yeah, I want to blow 1,000 or 2,000 here and there? Well, so here's the thing. So 20 million people with a little bit of money is just like a couple of million people with a lot of money, uh, basically. And you had a, a lot of young people coming to the market all at once, and they didn't have a lot of money, but they had a lot of impact. Um, so 
Robinhood, which is the preferred broker, basically, of the young YOLO investor, their median account had- Wait, at first demystify YOLO for us so everybody understands. Okay, sorry. FOMO you and YOLO. Uh, okay, sorry. You, you only live once. So that's the- You the only sort of, live once. Yeah, exactly. You only live once, and but you can go broke many times, uh, but you only live once. And that that was sort of the rallying cry of some of the, the, the more wilder, the wilder subset of these investors, right? Robinhood's customers had very little money in their accounts on average, sure. but they did a lot with it. They trade very actively. Many of them can trade and do trade uh, stock options, which have kind of, it's like weapons of mass destruction of the, the stock market. Basically, you can do a lot of damage to yourself and possibly others. And so their impact was felt way beyond the size of their accounts. And there were lots of them. The story that I tell, you know, GameStop was the most traded security on earth for several days. Uh, you had multi-billion dollar holes blown in some of the leading hedge funds on Wall Street. So they, they Stop definitely- Stop and ponder this for a minute. GameStop, which was widely derided as the next blockbuster, it was roadkill in a time of digital. I mean, yes, we all knew that. I remember my brother would go there and buy actual video games and everything. You talk about the experience with your children. It was fait accompli that this stock was going to head to zero or be recapitalized somehow. At a very pivotal moment at the beginning of 2021, when we're still kind of in COVID, you suddenly see its market capitalization surge backed by these battalions of, of retail investors. Yeah. And, and the stocks that surged, because it was one of, it was the leading meme stock. Uh, it was the OG meme stock. But uh, what do the meme stocks have in common? I'll just give you a list of them. I mean, they're, they're, these are companies that Maybe around 2001 would have been hot, but not 2021, right? I mean, BlackBerry, Nokia, Bed Bath & Beyond. There was Cost, which makes wired stereo headphones, stuff like that. Oh my gosh. But, yeah. What they, what they all had in common was that they were sort of, they were losers. They were kind of reckoned to be down for the count because people on, on Wall Street who, and they're not all exclusively selling stock short, but people on Wall Street who sell stock short, which means that you you bet that they will decline. You you borrow them from somebody else and you sell them, betting that their their price will decline and that you can buy it back later. Uh, they had been steamrollered in betting against companies like Tesla and stuff like that. Everything that was kind of hot and new and shiny in 2020, and but even betting against things like cruise lines and airlines, things that really got got you know should have gotten killed during the pandemic, they came roaring back and. 2020 was was a terrible year for them. So the one part of the market where they could feel pretty safe were these companies that no one was going to bid up, right? I mean, no GameStop. Come on, I mean, it was it was like Blockbuster three years before Blockbuster right. went bankrupt because of Netflix. Um, yeah, I've got three sons, and um, you know, my oldest boy's about to turn 23. Uh, and gosh, since he was about four years old, I mean, we have been visiting Blockbuster and. We don't visit it very much anymore. It's not just because of the pandemic. It's just because games. Well, you're talking about GameStop. Digitized. Yeah, GameStop, exactly. Yeah, you said Blockbuster, which oh, I, I'm sorry. I okay, yeah. So two. Freudian I slip. Yeah. The we don't two. go to I Blockbuster anymore either. There's one left in Oregon. Yeah, I think there's yeah. one left yeah. in the country. Yeah. It's kind of like yeah. I, I compare it to the Air Supply song. I've, I was asked to do a TV hit. And to my mind, this is like making love out of nothing at all, right? If the fundamentals aren't there, if the business is declining, if there are no cash flows, especially in a pandemic, and digital has already disrupted it, the rents have accrued elsewhere. Brick and mortar has had a horrific time compared to Amazon and everything else. But if a battalion of uh, sell of of nostalgists, let's just call them nostalgists, come in and say, "No, that's a part of my childhood," darn it! And these evil hedge fund short sellers are out there trying to annihilate this cornerstone of my childhood. What's amazing to me in reading your book is that this group recognized on the Reddit forums that there is an Achilles heel to the big Goliath traders is that unlike buying a stock where it could just the worst that can happen to you can go to zero. If you short sell a stock, say you short it at five dollars, you could un you could lose an unlimited amount of money. If it goes up to 10, if it goes up to 15, you have to say, gosh, I'm really losing money. Do I buy it back? to cover my rear, if you will. And if everybody buys it back at the same time, you get something called a short squeeze. And then that bludgeons all of these investors and these nostalgists, if, if you want to call them that, on, on Reddit and on Robinhood are saying like, yeah, David just beat Goliath. Totally. Exactly. I mean, it's like like a theater with one narrow little door. And then like you just sort of sprayed kerosene all over and threw a bunch of, of you know, of 
bombs into it. You know, they all these short sellers because they they do it to themselves. They trample one another uh, because the short sellers are the ones who have to buy. So in addition to all these young people, uh, mainly young people, uh, buying the stock and buying options uh, on the stock, which had a kind of a multiplier effect. It, you know, it I, it's a bit technical, but that also sparked a lot of stock buying. Um, the lot of the buying was just done by these funds who who had borrowed the stock and would default if they didn't pay it back, and they were bleeding, you know, red ink, and they had they had to buy. And the doing this is let's just put it in context. I mean, could could you always do this? I mean, no, because it was very rare like for uh, so many shares of a company to be sold short that more shares were sold short than uh, were available for purchase. It isn't illegal, as a lot of people assert. I know there's a lot of conspiracy theories about it. It's not illegal. It's a process called rehypothecation. But uh, at the peak, GameStop, about 140% of the available shares were sold short, which meant that there was just no way if something crazy happened. To so it was really the, the province of, of these, these short sellers, these hedge funds that were betting that it was going to go to zero. It was them betting it was going to go to zero. And they, they felt pretty safe with a company. Like, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? Okay, GameStop, it takes two to make a market. You always can be wrong, right? So GameStop, I think at, at its lowest, got down to like two dollars and seventeen cents in twenty twenty, like the when the pandemic was really bad. It was like scuffling around three dollars, four dollars a share. Uh, it got up to four hundred eighty three dollars a share. Blows you know, the mind and and the terror that these these you know you you illustrate these players like Plotkin, the hedge fund manager in this group, these people who are masters of the universe who take in hundreds of millions of dollars a year, who manage tens of billions of dollars. I want to quote from your book. Uh, secretly setting up a stock market corner in which you squeeze a short seller dry by snapping up all the available shares was the sort of thing that happened all the time in 1921, but not in 2021. It has long been illegal. But what if, instead of a few rich people doing it behind closed doors, a few million strangers with small accounts did it in full public view? Even if regulators cried foul, what on earth were they going to do about it? Uh, that's kind of the irresistible drama that I can't get over in this, that you have, you know, the small vote. It's like Bernie Sanders with his send in $23 contributions versus the big dark money, the big packs that are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on campaigns. Totally. I mean, and, and it's it's the, the thing is that let's say you and I each had a, a hedge fund and then we know some third guy who has a hedge fund who's sold a stock short. We We can't, you just can't do that. You're not allowed to collude. But I mean, this what is there really a rule about this? There isn't. But I, I don't think that this will happen again. And, and the, the the proponents, the sort of the people who who were active in this, have tried again and again to to make it happen, to make sort of the magic recreate itself. And um, it's kind of sad because I mean, they obviously they've they've made stocks go up. Uh, in the meantime, there are other meme stocks have emerged. It, it's a very much a live thing. But they spend a lot of money doing it. People can see them now. You know, people can see them. They know what they're doing. They know the shtick. And there's each month, tens of billions of dollars of uh, these investors' money kind of goes poof because they're they're sort of throwing it against a wall, trying to get stocks to move and trying to make things happen. But they're not really making, or, you know, some of them do, but mo most of them don't make any money themselves. They kind of spend a lot of money doing it. So it's 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 turned into a real nihilistic, weird thing after this kind of this moment of triumph. Um, and the other weird thing is that, you know, what was their goal? Their goal was, I mean, some people wanted to get rich. Some people wanted to kind of stick it to the man. Some people wanted to do a bit of both, kind of a twofer during this episode. But they they kind of didn't really. I mean, if you want to stick it to Wall Street, and I get that the young generation really resents Wall Street and resents the sort of whole sense that there's two sets of rules and yada yada, but they enriched large parts of Wall Street. That's the that's the crazy thing, and and a lot of lot of rich people got a lot richer off of this and continue to get richer off of this of the, these young people kind of trying to stick it to the man, and not that many of the young people made money either. So it it not only was not a twofer, they kind of mostly shot themselves in the foot, which they don't want to hear, but that's. That kind of is it. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm. That's why I became a financial journalist. I like to, you know, enlighten people and to help people, and I'm interested in personal finance. And you know, to see this young generation kind of go and open lots of brokerage accounts is a good thing. They want they should get their foot on the ladder in terms of the stock market, but not if it's 
not if it's going to be this, because I think a lot of them are going to sort of become bitter about it and think that like, that they got cheated, you know, and, and the, the way that this story kind of ends or the, the period that I describe ends, they, they kind of had a real legitimate reason for feeling cheated. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Spencer Jacob. He is the author of The Revolution That Wasn't GameStop, Reddit, and the Fleecing of Retail Investors. He manages and edits the Wall Street Journal's Heard on the Street column. Uh, if if you could please explain mechanically how Robinhood works, the idea works. Time was that they call it friction in trading would prevent excessive trading. If you have to pay, you know, in the 1970s, a hundred dollar commission to get out of a stock. It would it would be the uh, the barrier, the contraceptive for a person, you know, a punter with three four hundred dollars to go in and buy a few shares of something. If you had to pay a fat commission, but over time that fell to fifty dollars to twenty dollars nine ninety five, and then poof, three years ago, which you covered so well, the the commissions disappeared outright, and and these firms realized they needed to make money elsewhere. How is Robinhood making money with commission free trading? So it was not the first broker, but it was the first really successful broker to introduce zero commissions. And a, a couple of clever guys, uh, Bejubat and Vlad Tenev, got together. Uh, one was a grad student. One had recently been a student. They'd met at Stanford University, and they started a company to help hedge funds. They were helping hedge funds trade. And they said, hey, you know what? This hmm. trading cost almost nothing. Don't you think that we could, could do this for people? That we could we could help people you know trade for nothing basically and and then maybe we could design an app that made it very alluring and so yeah so they they started this this business and I, I spoke to one of their investors who said the early investors who kind of met them when they were you know they hadn't even launched it yet and saw the app and said this app is really good you know you guys could could charge a, like a buck or two this is when most people were charging six or seven dollars and they said no 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 we want to charge zero and it's possible to do. Because of the way that markets work today, which is that you don't have to send an order to a stock exchange. There are about 14 or 15 actual stock exchanges in the U.S., not just one, as, as many people believe. Uh, and they're really just big banks of computers these days. But they're stock exchanges where the prices are there and you can see the, the bid and the offer on all these stocks. But in addition to that, uh, there are a bunch of companies that will make a market in the dark, basically, uh, where they'll take your order. And they'll say, okay, we see this price on the stock exchange. We're not going to give you a worse price. We'll probably give you a better price, a little bit better. And we'll even pay you if you send us your order. So Robinhood deals with those companies. They send them the order. Now you ask, like, why would you do that? Why would you provide a service that the stock exchange provides and provide it at an even slightly yeah, why, better price? Why is, that, why is that information valuable for this parallel exchange? It's not that the information is valuable. It's that, that they... The stock market makes money too. The stock market, there always have been specialists who matched up buys and sells and they make, you know, over the years that they used to make a lot, they used to make like a, a eighth of a share, uh, eighth of a dollar. Now they make, you know, fractions of a penny, but they make money and these guys make money too. And they have really good computers. And so they get uh, a fraction of a penny per share that they keep. And then there's a fraction of, of a penny per share that they pay back to Robinhood or whoever else sends them an order. And that's how Robinhood makes money. Now, th this this is something that's called payment for order flow. It's something that only really geeky guys talked about before the GameStop explosion. And now a lot of people talk about. And it's spoken about like this nefarious thing. And I think people are kind of barking up the wrong tree. The reason that it's nefarious isn't that there's some kind of underhanded scheme, because the way it's done is pretty transparent. Uh, you can look up all the details of it. You don't get a worse price. The thing that that bugs me about it is that it makes this whole thing possible in the sense that Robin Hood's incentive is for you to trade as much as possible. The more you trade, the more they make. And is that really looking out for your best interest? Should you be trading a lot? Well, no, because study after study shows that the more often you check your account, the more often you trade as a retail investor, it's, it's crystal clear the worse you do. So it is to your detriment to trade all the time. Even though there's no commission, it's still costing you money. It's not free. And your, you know, and people make mistakes when they trade, and very active traders make more mistakes than people who are kind of passive. And, you know, and so there are people who trade like ten or eleven thousand times a year on Robinhood, uh, and their typical customer checks it over eight times a day, which is just uh, totally unnecessary. 
So they're trading it, they're treating it like a video game, but it's their money that's going into it. And it's, it's, you know, it, it, kind of i don't know what the line is between gambling well it brings to mind investing. that you know you wonder if these robin hood customers are customers or they're the product and I, to that end i want to read from your book again if you had told an enterprising young investor half a century ago that in the future people would all carry around a device in their pockets with instant access to the sum of human knowledge advice from a community of fellow traders instantly updated news headlines and share prices and the ability to buy and sell stocks and even options for free with a few finger swipes they would have salivated at the potential for profit. But instead of educating novices and allowing young people to build up capital, the loudest voices on social media and the slickest trading apps are helping Generation Z and millennials give their elders, victims of the dot-com bust and housing crash, stiff competition when it comes to stupid financial mistakes. Like them, they're also lining the pockets of already rich men in the process, just in a less apparent way. Uh, you know, actually speaking to... Uh, these these Robin Hood investors and the ones that are you know the Wall Street bets forum and and covering it just in the past year and a half, I think that a lot of them are in it for the you know what FOMO YOLO rush that it's exciting to actually see uh, a self fulfilling prophecy like the demise of AMC reversed. It's exciting for them uh, to to help the company raise money even though it's a paper gain. The company can turn around and sell this stock and buy itself a new reality. You know, it is. I mean, on the other hand, you know, executives of, of AMC, I mean, they, they weren't poor to begin with. They, uh, they've they walked away now with tens of millions of dollars of cash. You know, they've, they've sold their stock. The chief financial officer recently sold every single share he owns. The, you know, the, the, the board sold a lot of shares. Big investors sold a lot of shares. So they're, they're sort of the only game left in town. I mean, I don't know. The, the company now is is viable, uh, or much more viable, because they sold a whole bunch of stock to to these retail investors at a very, very, very high price. I I don't, you know, it, it used to be that when people saw a company selling o- overvalued shares to mom and pop or to retail investors, period, that that company kind of looked like the bad guy. And these executives are sort of they're they're treated as as heroes in uh, the this community of quote-unquote of apes, which is what they call themselves from the, the Planet of the Apes films. And, you know, it's kind of sad. I mean, I guess it's nice to be part of something. But, but I will say, but Spencer, know. I will say that, you know, Adam Aaron, I guess he is the... Uh, the the CEO of AMC who's kind of been playing this he's been riding it he's been he's been engaging with that community that took his stock from what $2 to 72 it's somewhere at the halfway point and sold stock he's like should we you know he's been putting out these trial balloons should we maybe start to sell our popcorn in stores or what do you guys want to see or what do you want to do or should we host events at this it's kind of like an ersatz shareholder activism with with kind of odd lot investors yeah it is i mean well they're they're the investors i mean they're, they're about 80% of the investors. The other 20% are index funds that kind of have to own the stock, right? So they're not really, they don't have any choice in the matter. The AMC is in a, in a stock index and the index fund needs to own it. So really almost all of the the actual investors who have a choice whether to, to be there or not are are retail investors because the, because the shares are kind of untouchable for, let's say, a, you know, a, like a, a mutual fund that might buy stocks for your retirement. They're like, no, I'm not going to buy this. They used to own it, and they they got out of these stocks because they're they're so much in the stratosphere. So, I mean, I guess it's it's kind of cool that he's taking a, a, ideas from the community, but it's kind of cynical because every chance that these executives get, they they sell stock. You know, there are all kinds of restrictions on when you can sell stock. You can't sell it all at once. The, you, the company can't you know go out and sell as much stock as it wants. But it's it's taken every opportunity and. You know the ex- board and the executives have taken every opportunity to to sell stock. So they're kind of, I mean, and they're like, oh, I'm doing it for tax planning purposes. Oh, I'm 67 years old. I need to do that. And they're like, yeah, you know, you're you're right. I mean, I, I don't know. I just I see it as a, as very cynical. Um, and I will and say I this, see- you know, to your to your point, there was this piece in uh, the Hollywood Reporter saying AMC Theaters New Year's resolution turn meme stock status into lower debt. Uh, meanwhile, AMC directors and executives have sold about $90 million worth of stock since its rise in January 2021. Uh, the CEO himself tweeted in 2020 and 20, early 21, we took on debt at high interest rates to survive. If we can in 2022, I'd like to refinance some of our debt to reduce our interest expense, push out some debt maturities by several years, 
and loosen covenants. So this is the swap you're seeing with the kind of the retail, the the the, the apes, if you will, the small investors right. helping the the smart money and the wealthy money, the institutional money, cash out. Right, and 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 the the pattern also repeats because you you're saying like we're sticking it to Wall Street, right? You have these wealthy executives who you know got through no, nothing that they they did; they just were in the the right place at the right time, had a windfall. Not just at AMC, all these other companies too. You know the the CEO of of GameStop who left, not the current CEO. He was the I think the fourth CEO in five years. You know he walked away with the kind of package that like people at much more successful, profitable companies would blush walking away with a package like that. You know, it's just sheer luck that he was at this company that was kind of picked up by this group. But then even beyond that, I'm not just the executives. I mean, Wall Street, here's a guy who's kind of seen as a, a, a villain by the community of apes, who's uh, Kenneth Griffin, who's a hedge fund manager, and he also is the majority owner of Citadel Securities. That's the biggest processor of retail trades. And there are all kinds of conspiracy theories about him having manipulated the the market which are are you know have have no merit but he is kind of seen as the kind of the Darth Vader or the Mephistopheles you know behind this evil Wall Street establishment well if you hate him so much why are you paying him so much money i mean all this trading activity is great for his business as a matter of fact as we speak i think just a few hours before our conversation that that company sold a minority stake in itself valuing it at 22 billion dollars you know, and yet, and- I mean, in, in closing, uh, Spencer, the community, the Reddit, Robin Hood, kind of GameStop, YOLO, FOMO, hang on for dear life. What do they call it? Diamond fingers. I mean, you really need a glossary in your book to understand the millennial, millennial and Gen Z jargon. There's a, there's great honor in just holding on and holding on for dear life. These people that went from $2 to $10 that anything in Finance 101 would have told you to hold on, they were validated and vindicated by going to $100. Two hundred dollars, and so many of them wear it as a you know badge of honor that I'm 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 here for life. You know they 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 do and they don't because if you look at the the, mm. the week that the events took place, you know there were it's like any religion or cult or whatever. I mean, and I don't want to call them a cult, but I mean any sort of anything that people become devoted to. The people who arrive late are the the most devoted, right? And so you had Wall Street bets go from uh, not quite two million people to. 10 million people in the span of several weeks. You had all these people come and join and say, I'm never selling, I'm not selling. And I, I think that a lot of those late arrivals were much more sort of adamant about that, about it being a movement as opposed to being a way to make money. But if you look at the statistics, even during the, the week, even during the height of the GameStop squeeze, for most of that time, retail investors were, someone was selling their stock. Some of them were were getting out while the getting was good. So it's not like they all did that. And the, and the hedge funds that took these big hits Contrary to popular belief, they they got out too. They got out with gigantic losses, but they got out pretty early in the game. And other hedge funds said, "There's no way this can continue," and they they kind of took over their positions. And and then some of them, you know, took it you know on the chin too. But it the narrative that they all held on is just not true. That's though what what actually kind of got me before the first article appeared about this got me interested in it was that my I was home editing an article. My oldest boy came up to me and asked if I was going to write about GameStop. And a friend of his uh, had bought the stock. I, I took a look at it. It's like, oh, wow, it like doubled in a couple of days. Well, I, I don't think you should hang on much longer. It's up because Wall Street Bets is talking about it. I don't see any news. And he said, no, 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 he's not going to sell. He won't sell. I'm like, what do you mean he won't sell? Like, you know, that, that's, that's sort of, then I started reading the message board and saw that there was, they were trying to engineer a, a squeeze, which is just <laughs> gobsmacked. You know, I mean, I, it's one of the, I've been, I, I worked as a, in, in finance for almost a decade. I've been a financial journalist for almost two decades. So over those 30 years, it's one of the most incredible things that I've ever encountered as someone who sort yeah, of knows I, a lot about finance. Yeah, when I was reading it, Spencer, I was thinking from the mouths of babes. Here we are, you and I, you know, I chiefly know you on Twitter and on your byline, but we're two old men with index funds kind of wagging our fingers at these whippersnappers. And here they are. Uh, painting this this new reality with GameStop and AMC. It was a pleasure having you on, sir. The name of the book is The Revolution That Wasn't GameStop, Reddit, and the Fleecing of Small Investors. Spencer Jacob of The Wall Street Journal, uh, you are always welcome to come back on this show. Thanks so much, Robin. Full disclosure, stay with us.
Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, recommend the show to friends and family, and follow along on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. If you're just joining us, we are discussing the supposed return and revenge of the long-lost individual investor, the mom-and-pop investor, the retail investor we were told was out of the markets for the better part of the past 20, 25 years. Uh, But my guests uh, would like to counter that reaction. We're talking to the Mulligan brothers, Finley Mulligan and his twin brother, Quinn Mulligan. They were new to investing as of January 2021. They uh, bought into GameStop during the January run-up, that infamous run-up, and they were furious when that buy button was taken away. But this sparked uh, a, a, a thirst to kind of understand more about how the market worked and how to uncover this for uh, John Q. Investor, how are you brothers doing? Doing well, thank you. How are you? Great, thank you. I'm all right. And you're joining us from Oregon, correct? Yeah, beautiful, rainy Portland, Oregon. <laughs> Start me off, jump ball. Uh, you guys, admittedly, when you wrote me, you said you were new to investing. I don't understand how something like this uh, 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 drew you guys in. Did you have just some extra money? Were you bored? Fear of missing out? How did this work? Take me back to January of 2021. Yeah, I mean, I was um, following Wall Street bets mostly for the comedy of that sub, if you've ever been on there, is an insane place and everyone should check it out at least once. Um, and initially, we saw what was happening with uh, DFV or Keith Gill, Roaring Kitty, and the GameStop play, um, not knowing his bull case for the company, but hearing about this supposed mother of all short squeezes. So we bought in at that time, like so many others, and lo and behold, the play was correct and the squeeze was on until that buy button got taken away. But our initial uh, jump into this whole experience was that uh, early January craze of people buying in. Do you have memories of GameStop? I mean, was this uh, meaningful to you? Did you kind of want to defend the honor of GameStop from these vicious short sellers? Uh, Yeah, I mean, we've been going to GameStop since we were like young kids. And there's, you know, so many memories of getting some of our first video games there. And even up through the pandemic, I was going in there to swap games out. Um, I think a lot of like folks that didn't have enough money to buy new fresh games all the time went to GameStop a lot because you could swap old games. Um, so that's kind of our experience with it growing up. Um, and yeah, there's definitely the element of, man, these companies are trying to take down GameStop. Like, no way, man. <laughs> I mean, gaming is so huge within people of our generation, you know, and it's only an industry that is growing so fast. So, you know, there's there's a lot of room for companies like GameStop to go. And just to illustrate for everybody, I'm looking back at the chart for years, going back to 2017, you have a stock that's, you know, scraping the bottom in the 20s, in the teens. Uh, It gets to the low single digits by 2019. I think it hits $3. What is it? $4, $2. And then the inflection point, uh, (laughs) January of 2021, it goes from $19, shoots all the way up to $325 in less than a month. And you guys are watching this and you have this mysterious Kaiser Sose type figure. What is it? Uh, what is his name? Kitty? Wall Street Bets? I know I sound like an old I guy. I mean, he's he's a YouTuber. It's everywhere. He's not mysterious at all. You can check out his channel, Roaring Kitty, Keith Gill. He's been right up front. Roaring yeah. Kitty. Roaring Kitty tells you that this is going to be a short squeeze. The mother no, of all so short he, squeezes. He's a, a value investor. He's a deep value investor. He might be not traditional in, in how he went about what he did, but he had been saying for years that GameStop was undervalued. And if you look at his channel, he makes a pretty darn good case for it. Now, a lot of people who jumped in at the time didn't necessarily know that the hype around the short squeeze wasn't from Keith Gill. It was from the community of Wall Street Bets. So I think we do have to separate those two things. But how did you guys even know what a short squeeze was? Again, I'm not trying to be condescending. I'm trying to see the kind of the education of new investors. Yeah, it's So you, you learn, right? So one thing that's been amazing about this whole experience over the course of the year is we've been going on places like Reddit. People make these posts and some of them are very skilled and know what they're talking about and others are not so much, but you weed through that, right? And the, the cream rises to the top. And by just going on forums, we learned what these things were, the mechanics of them, and enough at least to know that the play was good or at least feel it was in our own minds, you know? Like people are making their own decisions here and doing their own research so uh, we learned it from Reddit, you know, and as the year has gone on, we've learned more and more. And as we decided to make a film on all of this, we've only gotten deeper and talked to experts and, and learned about what's going on in our markets. And it's been fascinating to watch these people teach each other. 
Yeah, all through just the power of the internet and through these messaging boards on Reddit, you know, upvoting to bring something that's valuable to the surface of the conversation, downvoting if it's not pertinent or if it's a waste of time, but also using like memes and just humor to disseminate some um, pretty intricate financial, you know, tools. So it's it's been hilarious. It's been fun to watch. And it's been really instructive for a lot of people out there who have always felt that the markets weren't for them or that. It's only like, you know, rich people that look a certain way, they get to be involved in our markets. So uh, it's been interesting seeing what massive uh, diversity there is in this community, too, who for the first time feel that they understand some of these um, inner workings of their markets and are willing to take part. Uh, do you mind Do you mind if I use the, the millennial parlance? Did you have a stimmy burning a hole that you guys wanted to spend? I mean, where did the cash suddenly materialize well, at the beginning of 2020? I think it's important to note that these, quote, apes or these retail investors, they're not a monolith, right? So they're not all millennials. It's a very wide range of ages, races, ethnicities. And we've been talking to these people for the better part of a year now. So I think it's a bit disingenuous to paint the picture that it's just a bunch of millennials going crazy over a stock. Um, but for us specifically, and we don't speak for other people, um, we it wasn't just stimulus checks. I had my own money I put into this. You know, been interested in investing for a long time, and this was kind of a catalyst. You know, I think so many people in the pandemic who normally don't have time to pull their nose out of the grind suddenly had time to step back, like people of better means do, and learn about markets and decide to step in for the first time. So, I don't. I think we shouldn't ignore just how big. And how varied uh, this movement was amongst people that wanted to better their futures. Yeah, we've spoken to you know fifty-year-old moms, seventy-year-old dads. We've spoken to teenagers from Austria, from England, from Canada. There's people from all over the place. You know, South Korea. It's it's crazy. We we would put basically put an ask out for people to send us a short video of their experience and why they got involved in the first place. And the diversity in those in that group of people is phenomenal and is interesting and fascinating to see how many people from all over the world and all walks of life in this country were interested in engaging in our markets and looking for um, a fair shake. Well, tell me about that experience with GameStop. Do you remember what the investment, you both of you together, and what the price was that you got in? Yeah, I initially got in at 120 I think. Um, Seriously? Wait, $120 or a buck? $120. Yeah, I got in much uh -huh. higher than that. I jumped in like at the top. <laughs> Uh, I think it was like around 340 and then average down. But here, look, like the, the thing about like jumping in so high is you got to remember, I jumped in at 120 or whatever it was. It's about that. When we were correct about the play of the short squeeze, you know, that would have been profitable. And it still is, by the way. But even the, the people that bought in higher, like it was moving up. The, the play was correct. It got stopped. So I think, you know, I don't, it's, it's, a bit hypocritical to oh, well before before we get into that mechanically, I just want to explain for our uh -huh. listeners that the stock went f all the way up to four hundred and eighty three dollars interday. I mean yeah. that is kind of unthinkable. It's wild. Its current market capitalization, after being kind of derided as a worthless company, it's worth ten billion dollars. So in addition to maybe the fringe benefit of sticking it to the the short sellers well. that we're trying to kind of accelerate the demise of of a, of a company that you guys fondly remember. Was there potentially this idea also of um, you becoming actual owners of this company, that you helping determine its destiny as people who ran up the stock at a critical time? I mean, we've discussed this with AMC, for example, the way the CEO is back and forth with investors and engaging them on Twitter and seeing if they should open theaters for other events or sell their popcorn to supermarkets. Were you kind of romancing this idea as well with GameStop? So after the buy button was taken away, a lot of people stayed, right? They didn't sell their stock. And as time has gone on, um, the value case for GameStop has become more and more apparent and popular. I mean, Ryan Cohen bought into this stock. Michael Burry was bought into this stock. And what Ryan Cohen, who, of course, great entrepreneur who founded Chewy, took on Amazon and won basically in the pet space and e-commerce. He has gone on to take this company and bring in people from Amazon, from Chewy. And where this company is going is not where it was, right? This is, when you say dying brick and mortar, you know, that that was GameStop at one point. But right now, this is a completely different company with a different runway of where it's going to go. So yeah, we've become value investors in the company as time has gone on. And most people have bought more. They've gotten more and more convinced in the company itself. 
Um, but you know, that's not to say people aren't still in it for this squeeze. So it's, it's a bit of both, but for us personally, like, yeah, I mean, it's, it, again, it's a really diverse group of people and their motivations are just as diverse. Some people are in it just to make a ton of money. And some people like ourselves have um, turned towards a value investment and some people started as a value investment. Like Keith Gill. Yeah, exactly. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to the Mulligan Brothers, Finley Mulligan and his twin, Quinn. Uh, they're both investors in uh, GameStop. They both got involved with uh, Wall Street Bets or Reddit. Uh, you know, this entire community that we're talking about, Revenge of the Retail Investor, back in that fateful month of January 2021 when they bought into GameStop and the, the, the stock ran up enormously. I don't understand what the controversy was that Maxine Waters and everybody had to drag uh, these executives in the fund. If 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 retail investors are having fun, let them have fun. I mean, especially why is there any sympathy for billionaire hedge fund investors getting torched? Or why did the the, the buy button have to go away? Is that a question? Yeah, I I don't know, man. It's <laughs> like, a really good question. I mean, it, you have to look at. I guess. I mean, for us, right? We're we're trying to dissect this question of, you know, what are the motives? How did this happen? Why are we in this situation? And the thing is. We lack so much transparency in our markets that we can't look in Citadel's books. We can't, you know, there's there's evidence kind of surrounding all of this stuff, but we can't prove any of it specifically. You know, what we can do is look at FINRA actions. You know, Robinhood had the highest FINRA fine of all time, you know, for- Robinhood had the highest FINRA fine of all time. For doing what? So Robinhood, when they had their fine, it was about misleading communication about revenue sources and failing- to satisfy best execution, which is their duty as a broker to us retail investors, right? So uh, this is amazing to me that you 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 guys didn't take. Did, I mean, you weren't steeped in finance one hundred one or everything. You get the baptism again. It's not. I, I don't have to give you the disclaimer that it's not condescension, but it's not like your Series Seven, Series Sixty Three train brokers or anything. No, but you're you're throwing out Finra. You're starting out short squeeze. You're talking about Robin Hood being brought before Congress and. You know, fine for lack of disclosure or disclosure. In the end, I this is a question that I asked Spencer Jacob, and you know who who uh, wrote a book on this of the Wall Street Journal is: Are you the customers of Robinhood, or are you a product that they're selling to someone? In my mind, we are definitely the product. Their customers are the likes of Virtu and Citadel, who you know pay them exorbitant amounts of money for their order flow. Uh, we are we okay, so we have been retail has been kind of this this wealth generation tool for the ultra wealthy in this country for quite a while you know um at every turn they're finding a way to profit off of our you know shares and and paying paying for our order floats i mean us as as retail investors right robinhood is incentivizing us to trade more and more often and at higher volumes and you ask yourself why well they're being paid for that order flow they're not in the interest of making better investors that hold long-term stocks and don't trade often, like they want you trading constantly to get money in their coffers or to have more shares to lend out and make money off of your shares, meaning you can't have your dividend, you get a payment in lieu of your dividend, or you lose your rights in corporate governance. Like these, there are so many layers to all of the ways that retail is being uh, taken advantage of. And yeah, it's in their disclaimers probably when you sign up, but it's not adequate to really sh show the quote customer what the risk is and what they're doing. Yeah, it's no surprise to me that Bernie Madoff's the one that that uh, made payment for order flow. You know, <laughs> I mean, Citadel. Uh, there's a quote from Citadel in 2004. They said this practice distorts order routing decisions, is anti-competitive, and creates an obvious and substantial conflict of interest between broker dealers and their customers. Here in this instance, we agree with Citadel. <laughs> Maybe the one and only. I got it. I got it. But is it a moot point? Is it a moot point at this point? Because the commission has gone away. You guys can just take your talents to what? Schwab, Ameritrade, E-Trade. They've all been consolidated in various respects. It's the, it's not the commission anymore. It's the fact that you got this education. They, You realize you don't want to be a product. You'd rather be a customer. There are other places that prioritize customer service or transparency more. Haven't you kind of grown out of the Robin Hood mold? Yeah, a lot of like people are going to Fidelity, which internalizes in its own way. That's a different can of worms. But Fidelity didn't shut off the buy button, you know. So that's one. But also, people are learning about direct registration. They're DRSing their shares in hopes of keeping it out of DTCC. Like they're it, these apes, quote like are learning so much. And to underestimate these people, these like everyday people and retail investors, 
is is a, a dangerous thing to do. I also think that to say that because someone's getting a commission-free trade, that it's okay that their broker just completely disregards their their responsibility to get best execution is crazy to me. You know, there are regulations around this for a reason. You're supposed to protect these people because a lot of them aren't, you know, experts in the financial world and don't even realize the ways that they're being screwed over. So it's kind of like pulling the wool over someone's eyes when they're already blind and then stealing their wallet. It doesn't make any sense to me. And this has gone from from this squeeze and this retail frenzy and hedge funds. It's moved beyond that, right? And I think it's it's irresponsible for the media to keep characterizing this story as a fight between these like misguided millennials and the hedge funds. You know, this is a story about ultra wealthy organizations siphoning wealth from the real economy, and this is at a detriment to our free market and capitalism as a whole. I mean, earned internalization and consolidation and fragmentation in our markets is making for a worse playing field for everyone that has a pension fund, everyone that has a 401k. Um, the more trading that we do off of lit exchanges, the less competitive our markets are and the worse off the normal people who actually live in this world are. Is it fair to call you shareholder activists at this point? If you don't want me to bring up the whole millennial tropes and avocado <laughs> toast and everything, I won't. I won't go that. We're route. from Portland, I mean, man. We got a guys... lot of avocado toast. That's <laughs> really good. <laughs> but no, are you? What? How would you? What, what kind of bucket would you put yourselves in at this point? I mean, you can go on and hold your own on CNBC and talk about uh, blind exchanges and not getting, you know, being able to list your shares. You're talking in fairly esoteric. Uh, sophisticated institutional jargon, right? To say that you cannot list your shares with a broker. And hundreds of thousands of people are. <laughs> it's crazy. Like, okay, so to your point earlier of us, you know, not wanting to condescend to us and saying, you know, a year ago, you didn't know squat about any of this. It's, I didn't mean it that I didn't mean it that way. It's, it's fair. Really I mean, we didn't. <laughs> Look, after all, after all, you guys are called, you know, the, this community calls itself apes. You guys yeah. are apes we're, together. We're definitely self-deprecating. And, and what I'm, my, the point that I'm trying to make is um, that, you know, it's, it's a whole bunch of people that have been self-educating and all this stuff. But it's not like, so we're not strangers to being screwed over. You know, like my city, Portland, housing, the cost of housing, I can't buy a house in my own hometown. And there are people all over this country that are in the same position. Food prices going up, gas prices going up, this wealth disparity between the ultra wealthy and the middle and lower classes is growing every day. So when I think a lot of people saw this buy button got take, taken away, they said, hey, that is one single point of focus where I can direct my anger. It certainly felt that way for me. It's like, hey... <laughs> Quit robbing me. You know? I mean, that's but hold up, hold up, hold up. When you guys, when you guys say the buy button was taken away, yeah, this unlikely development, you were so putting the screws to the short sellers by running up uh, uh, GameStop and and others that they could theoretically lose an unlimited amount of money. They were putting out capital calls. They were getting help. These Goliaths that suddenly Robin Hood took the buy button away, and you guys cried foul. You're saying it shouldn't work that way. It shouldn't work that you could just short. A company, and it's got to be a two-way road. Yeah. That's it. I mean, we were winning, and they changed the rules, right? You go to position close only uh, when it's not convenient for Robinhood. You know, if, if they were truly responsible, they should have seen this coming and been prepared to support the people who they thought of as or who thought they were their customers, right? And they just weren't, and uh, many other firms weren't. It's not just Robinhood, you know. So, or perhaps the mechanisms that allowed the short interest to get so high shouldn't have been there. Perhaps there should have been better regulation. So to to blame it on a bunch of people that saw an opportunity in the financial markets and and you know maybe a good chunk of them gambled on it, um, then to turn around and say, oh it's but it's fine for you know multi-million, multi-billion dollar companies to gamble every day with your 401k. How's that? I mean that's what drives me crazy, right? Like a great thing Dave Lauer said to us when we interviewed him, who's an amazing guy. He said, gains are privatized, losses are socialized. And we're living in a world right now where these high fre frequency speculators, you know, they're not trading on fundamentals. It's, they're trading on technicalities, right? This is, they're trading on inefficient, structural inefficiencies in our markets to make abstract wealth gains. While we're told we have to play by fundamentals. It's hypocritical, it's wrong, and we just want the chance to play by the same rules as everybody else. And when we find a win like that, they should get out of the way, let it happen, and give us a free market, which obviously we don't have right now. 
in the near future, you know, I think we will we will see regulation regarding payment for order flow. I think we will see SEC rules come out about share lending and, and transparency and short selling and so on. But what I hope more broadly, what we can do is look at the questions of what are we willing to gamble in our markets in the pursuit of like liquidity above all? You know, how leveraged are we willing for our markets to become and at what cost, right? So I hope that this story comes off of our corner of the internet and everyone out there listening realizes that the practices of these wholesalers, internalizers, and brokers that are supposed to be working for us, that all of this affects anyone who has a pension fund and a 401k or who wants a free market. Any politician that wants a free market that is for some of these things is disingenuous and you better look at who is paying for them. King Griffin put $60 million toward Congress and you can guarantee that money's there for a reason, right? And not to call out one person in particular, but money is involved with all of this. And unless we separate that and everyone starts digging in, we're never going to have a changed system. But there are people doing a great job at trying to forward these things like Better Markets, Dave Lauer, Gary Genzer, we actually appreciate and think he'll be doing some great things. So we're excited for the next year. Thank you so much. The Mulligan Brothers joining us from Portland, uh, investing advocates. What did I say? Shareholder advocates, <laughs> documentary makers, musicians. The link is apestogetherstrongdoc.com. And in closing, just a favor of you guys, if you could somehow bring back Kenny Rogers Roasters, I know it predates <laughs> you, but I, I, I kind of miss that. No, I remember it, that. It when started I was young. in Seinfeld. Maybe you could recapitalize it and start YOLOing it and FOMOing it. I, I, I miss that chicken. There are certain companies I'm not sure we should bring back from the dead. And at Kenny Rogers Theme Restaurant is probably <laughs> up there on that list. No one to fold them, man. <laughs> come back. Come back on the show anytime. <laughs> All right. Thanks for having me. Thanks, man. Thanks. Full disclosure, special thanks this week to Claire Morgan at Notterly, this show podcast, to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us. Join us, YOLO, FOMO, whatever you'd like to do. Special thanks to our radio partners. We have WERA in Arlington, Virginia, and Washington, D.C. We are across Virginia on Radio IQ, Virginia Public Radio. You can hear us down in Asheville and Ventura, California. Holler if you, too, would like us on your air. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you so much for listening and back with you next week. 